Welcome, friends, to the Someone Gets Me podcast. I am your host, Diane Allen, and I am so delighted that you're here. This podcast was created because I believe there is a visionary leader inside each one of us who is waiting to be seen. In each episode of Someone Gets Me, you will hear useful tips from successful visionaries who will share their stories about how being seen has allowed them to take their vision out into the world with action. Dealing with grief as an empath. Hello, everybody. It's Diane here at Someone Gets Me, and I have a great guest with us today, a gifted person who is an empath who I've known for many years. Her name is Ruth Vaughn. Now, Ruth is a multi-potentialite. Uh, she is educated in the field of English, which you will hear about. She's also a realtor. She's also a mom of three very successful gifted adults. So she's got a lot to talk about. But what we're going to focus on today is how Ruth, as an empath, has been dealing with different kinds of grief in her life because she's dealt with some really big tragedies. So welcome to the show, Ruth, and thank you for being so willing to talk about a very difficult subject. Thank you for having me. I want to start off a little bit about if you could give people a little flavor of what your growing up world was like. Like what was little Ruth doing when she was young? And then, then we'll speed up a little bit to, you know, more current things. Well, I had an interesting family life compared to other people my age because both my parents had been previously married my mother's first husband died from leukemia. So I have two sisters older than me. One is 17 years older and one seven years older. So I pretty much grew up as an only child because of the uh, age differences. My father was also previously married and his wife died and they had no children. So I was my father's only child and the apple of his eye. My mom was, I felt like my mom was kind of over the whole thing. <laughs> I, kind of, I, in my words, I grew up as a wild child. I grew up on a farm, our family farm. I was outside pretty much all day, every day of my life. And I loved it, loved it. I was lonely sometimes, but I had so much freedom. So when I went to school, which wasn't until first grade, it was like hitting a brick wall because I thought I was going to go and play with other children and have fun. And I had to sit down in a room all day long. And, you know, that's really hard for me. I'm, I'm a little hyper. I probably should have been diagnosed with ADHD, but I wasn't because I was a really good student. And so I, I, I went along and I did well, but I loved my life freedom. I loved the freedom that I had growing up. It was wonderful. And I still love my freedom. <laughs> but my, my first major encounter with death was my dad died when I was 11. He had lung cancer that metastasized. The strange thing is my mother never told me that he was going to die. I didn't know until I actually overheard my sister on the phone with the man she was dating, who has now had been her husband for 52 years. And I heard her say she couldn't go out because she thought my dad was going to die. And my grandmother was with me. My mom was at the hospital with my dad. And I screamed. Of course, I was hysterical because in my little 11-year-old brain, I thought people went to the hospital to get well. And I didn't realize that he was going to die. Years later, I asked my sister why my mom didn't tell me the truth. And she just said, I don't know. And that was kind of the end of it. So that's all I got out of her. So I, I don't know 
why my mom didn't tell me, but it was, it was a sudden death for me, even though he lingered for a long time. And in my brain, I wanted him to get well. And so I didn't realize that he had lost so much weight that he was coughing up blood. Like I just like didn't see all of those things because I didn't, that's, I didn't want to see that, you know, I wanted him to get well. So that was my first experience, very traumatic back then. We didn't go to therapy, especially, you know, I mean, maybe city people did, but farm people just wasn't even an option. I definitely went into a depression. You know, as I said, I was my daddy's girl. I followed him everywhere, rode on the tractors. I was out in the hog pen everywhere with, with my dad. I was his little shadow and I loved it. And so it was devastating for me, absolutely devastating loss at that time. Which is, it carried on forever, really. Right. And sure it is. It, it can, you know, you can move on after those kinds of deep losses, but you know, you're changed forever as a result of it. And you being a really sensitive, gifted person, it landed on you intensely and your age, you know, and it, and it stays there. And you still honor your dad a lot by being a really, really great mom, you know, and really doing things that he would have done for you. For your kids. And I know that because I've known you for a long time. So I can say <laughs> that I'm not talking out of school. <laughs> okay. So one of the things I'd like to ask you about is, is about being an empath because a lot of people don't really realize what it is. And for me, an empath is somebody who feels very, very deeply and sometimes can take on other people's emotions and not realize it and be very much affected by other people's energy, emotion, whatever it is. And when did you realize the first time that maybe you had some kind of deeper emotional sensitivity than the average bear? Uh, several years ago, I was in a workshop and people were writing their life stories. And this uh, gentleman was reading his story and the physical abuse he endured at the, endured at the hands of his father was just overpowering to me. I could feel it. I was sick to my stomach. I, I kept thinking, I'm going to have to run out of this room. I'm going to have to run out of this room. I, I, can't, I can't take this. I mean, I could feel the pain for this little boy because he was a little boy when it happened. And I was shaking and sick and almost like a panic attack. And just, and of course, you're the one that actually told me, well, you have a gift. You're an empath. And I'm like, well, what the hell kind of gift is this? Like, this is a terrible gift. Why can't I read people's minds or fly or something? Like, this is terrible to feel pain for other people. Like, this is not good. But I do remember many years ago, like the first time I saw Gone with the Wind, the slaves were getting whipped. I would like cringe and cry and hurt. Like, I would, I physically feel the pain that others are enduring. And that's why it's really hard for me to watch violent type of movies. Like I, and I just, I honestly don't even, I rarely watch the news because I can't let negativity or anything painful or disturbing like that into my soul. I just can't, I just can't take it. Right. Yeah. Cause it's so profound and, and so heavy. Do you ever notice yourself feeling the feelings or feeling the energy from something that's happy or joyful or other than grief and pain? I do. I feel like the grief and pain feelings are stronger. But of course I do when I uh, go to a wedding or a very happy occasion. You know, I, I, I get teary-eyed and, you know, as I think most people do, I feel the joy and, you know, remember the joy that I felt on my own wedding day. And 
when someone has a baby, I'm so happy because, you know, that was obviously like the happiest days of my life when I gave birth to my three children. And so I do feel that, but it just seems like there's more. And especially at our age, a lot of my friends are becoming widows now that, you know, we're at a certain age. And I, it takes me right back to that time when my own husband died. And I, I feel their pain because I know their pain. When I've seen a couple in person, like back in Illinois, is where I'm originally from with lots of friends. And I saw one of my friends and she grabbed me and hugged me and burst into tears. And then later that night, somebody else did the same thing. And my one friend is like, why does everybody cry to you? You know, and I go, because they know I know, like I know their pain and and seeing me reminds them of what has happened to them. And I, I get that. It's just, it's, it's kind of a curse. I wish people would laugh when they saw me, but they, you know, they cry because it just comes out of them, you know, and, and it's because they know, I know the depth of their pain. Yes. Yes, you do. And are you willing to share a little bit about, about what happened with your husband and how all that happened? Cause this was many, many years ago. And it'll be 25 years in May. Wow. 25 years in May. And I'm sure it's just as raw now as it was then. And so are you willing to share a little bit of the story? Sure. Because it's it wasn't a slow situation at all. Sure. Well, we kind of had the perfect life. We were just a nice couple next door in the two-story home. We had lived in a nice community. We were members of the country club, the art association, the symphony, the Catholic church. We were very involved in the community on many boards of directors and great social life. Just, we had a wonderful life. And my husband was a very avid bicyclist and they would, he and his friends would jump on their bikes on Saturday or Sunday morning and ride 30, 40, 50 miles. They'd stop and have breakfast, ride back home. He was in a group called the the Gumby. They went to Ragbri every year, which is the registered annual greater ride across Iowa. And every year the path changes and all of the men love doing that ride. Like that was their week of taking off their watches, ditching their phones and just riding their bikes, drinking a few beers, having a lot of fun and forgetting all the stress of work and home life. So on the weekend, Memorial weekend, my husband had gone with the guys on Saturday and they went to have breakfast and he got home and he said, it was really windy coming home So we're not going to go tomorrow, but we're all going, meaning the women too, on Monday. And then we're going to have a cookout at a friend's house. I said, okay, great. So uh, it was the weekend of the dance recital. My daughter had her dance recital. He waited up for us that night, Saturday night. Sunday morning, I awoke into a pitter-patter of little feet. My, My baby was three and a half and he came. I was still asleep and he came down the hallway and into my bedroom and I picked him up and we were snuggling and talking. And, and then I said, "Um, I need to get up and do some things. So I made the bed and I went and got the laundry. I was folding laundry and I saw a car come to my house. And I, I know, I knew it was my friend Carla and we had a, a garage sale the week before. So I thought she was bringing to me my garage sale money. So I was real excited to see Carla. Yeah, she's bringing money. But she had a couple of people in the car that had dark hair and she's a family of blondes. So I thought, well, who are these people in the car with her? And so I went downstairs and opened the door. And when I saw the expressions on my friends' faces, they all looked like they were going to 
throw up or pass out or I don't know. It was just a, a look I've never seen. And Carla was doing the talking and talking very fast and telling me that, you know, Gary was on a bike ride and he got hit by a car and he didn't make it. And, and I couldn't even comprehend what they were saying. I was like, what? Because I didn't, I didn't think he'd gone on the bike ride, you know? And so I, um, as we were standing there, two of the other gentlemen who were in the group came up and I thought, my thought was, why are they saying this? Like, this is a horrific joke. Like, this isn't even funny. Why are they saying this? So I went to the basement because he worked in the basement a lot. He had a gym down there and he strung tennis rackets and it was dark. The light was off. He wasn't in the basement. I opened the garage door. The cars were there. He hadn't gone off in the car. I went on around to the kitchen in the family room and all three kids were sitting there watching TV. And I said, where's your dad? And my daughter said he went on a bike ride. And that's when it hit me. And I fainted and I hit my head on the corner of the wall. They caught me. I didn't catch the floor. We didn't find out till later I had a concussion because I had a huge knot on my head, which I was in so much pain that I didn't even, I wasn't even aware. And then I rubbed my head one couple of days later and I said, wow, I have a huge, huge bump on my head. And they took me to the ER and I had a concussion from hitting my head. I was immediately, a friend of mine's a doctor, I was immediately given medication, you know, something to make me not be hysterical. I remember calling his family and I was very calm. Of course, I was in shock. And I said, this is what they're telling me. Like, I still didn't even fully believe it. I said, this is what they're telling me has happened. You know, mm -hmm. I said to his brother and sister, you need to tell your parents, go over there and tell your parents, you know. And um, then it's, it's kind of a blur. And people have said to me later, like, how, how could you stand all those people in your house? And I said, what people? And they're like, your house was full of people all the time. And I didn't even know. I was so out of it. I, I don't even know where my children were, what they were doing, what they were eating for at least two weeks. But thank God I lived in a community, small town community of 20,000 people. And it takes a village and the village totally stepped up and took care of me and my children and everything. Uh, my, my girlfriend's husbands came and mowed the lawn. Anything that needed to be done, it was just done. I do remember one of my friends came over to help me pay bills because back then we wrote checks and she wrote out the check and I had to sign my name. I couldn't even write my name. I, I couldn't write my name. It, it looked nothing like my signature. The depth of the grief is so intense. And I've, I've read that a sudden death is the most difficult, but... I have friends who have lost their husbands to cancer. And I think watching the, the man that you love dwindle away has to be just as excruciating. But this is extremely difficult. We didn't get to say goodbye. Didn't get to say I love you one last time. I was left with three children, 10, 5, and 3. I was so overwhelmed. And I, I just kept thinking, I got in the wrong line. This isn't what I signed up for. I got in the wrong line. Like, this isn't how my, what my life is supposed to be. Um, just so many things. It was just so devastating. And um, leaving him, we, we didn't have a visitation. And the strange thing is, um, my neighbor's husband had died, and he was only 36. He had died six months earlier. And we'd gone to the visitation, and we'd had a conversation. And my husband said he didn't want a visitation. He didn't want anyone to see him dead. And I said, well, I think the family should see you because... 
we, you know, people need to get closure. So you need to see it because sometimes you can't even believe it. So, so I did see him and his immediate family and our children saw him briefly. Um, but the, um, the undertaker, who's a dear friend, couldn't get me to leave. Like I could not leave. I'm, my brother-in-law had to come in and physically carry me out because I knew if I left him, I'd never see him again. I couldn't leave. Um, it was absolutely awful. So to, to tell you how the accident happened, there was a, a 20 year old man who at the age of four was institutionalized. He had burned down his um, apartment in Chicago, killing his mother and his siblings. There was no father in the picture. He became a ward of the state. So he was moved from institution to institution because every place he went, he became violent. He hurt other people. He threw chairs out windows. Um, he was constantly moved. But the people who own these nursing homes, these institutions, owned many, and they would just move him from one to the next to the next because they wanted to keep getting the money from him. So he ended up landing in our little small town, unbeknownst to everyone, no one knew that there was a 20-year-old violent man living among their 80, 90-year-old parents. Like, no one knew this. And so that Saturday night, he um, approached a 79-year-old woman and asked her to have sex. And she said, no, you're not my type. And so he pushed her into the bathroom and he beat her and raped her and left her for dead. He um, hit her so hard with the chains that were holding the shower curtain, they were embedded into her head and had to be surgically removed. He then, he obviously knew what he was doing. He went to his room and changed his bloody clothes and he walked out the back door. So no security in the place, doors were not locked and this was at 11 o'clock at night. So he proceeded to walk and walk and walk. And in the country, many people don't lock their doors. So he, he landed upon this home and the woman had not locked her door. She was asleep on the sofa. Her daughter was asleep upstairs. And he walked into the house and he opened the refrigerator and he ate their pizza. And then he got in her purse and he took money and car keys. And then he took off down the road. And... Um, he turned onto the highway, he saw the bikers and the two survivors said he looked at them and he turned the wheel and went right for them. And his bikers ride staggered. My husband was on the inside of the road as the second one in the line. So he bore the brunt of the, the vehicle and he was killed instantly. Which is, you know, one thing that saved me for, for a long time. I was just tortured by the thought of the um fear and pain that he must have felt. However, um, a wonderful uh, gentleman from the sheriff's office came to me and said that he was out on the road one day and he was hit by a car and he woke up in the bed and he said, he remembers standing there. He has no recollection of the car coming near him. He wasn't afraid. He felt no pain. And so that made me feel better. And then I've read in books that many times in violent deaths, the soul actually leaves the body before the injury even happens. So that the injury, and I believe this, I have to believe this or else I'd lose my mind, but um, the, the, um, 
the soul is gone and doesn't actually feel the pain. And it's just a body that is left there. Um, so after that, um, we had to go, the, the man then uh, ran into a tree and he had multiple broken bones. And I do remember um, after it hit me, as they were telling me at the front door, I went upstairs and this is so strange because I, I know we had guns in the house, but honestly, I think they were in the basement. But I started to go upstairs and they said, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to get the gun. I'm going to kill him. And, you know, I think of that now and I was like, whoa, what a reaction. But and, and honestly, I don't even think we had a gun upstairs. So I don't know where that came from. But um, they're like, oh, no, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. Um, so. After, after that, we had the arraignment, and he was so badly injured that, that the um, courthouse wasn't handicapped accessible, so we had to go into the jail. They had it there. And so he was on a gurney, like, oh, maybe six feet from me. And it was, I was with the other two gentlemen who were also badly hurt. One man's um, foot was nearly amputated. He's a doctor. They were able to save it, but his foot is swollen much larger, and, and he suffers from arthritis. Um, the other one had a compound, compound fracture. He was telling everybody he was fine. He just had a little cut in his leg, but he didn't. The bone was sticking out of his leg. So both had, you know, severe injuries, but have recovered, fortunately. Um, so as we sat there and I sat with their wives and he's right there in front of me, across from me were sheriffs lined up and my little brain is going, how can I get over there and get a gun? I think they'd be so surprised if I jumped up over there, I could get the gun and I could shoot him. And nobody would even be mad because everybody knows he deserves it. You know, this is what's going through my brain. Like, how can I choke him? How can I, like, I was thinking of how, how I could physically hurt him because of what he's done to me and my family. Um, and I think the fact that I grew up, you know, losing my dad, all I ever wanted was a family. And in a heartbeat, this man stole it from me. I, I felt like we were no longer a family. And later, my sister-in-law said, you think you're not a family, but you are. A fa you're still a family. It's you and these children. You are a family. You're just not the family that you wanted or the, you know, the, the family that you thought you had. Um, and that was very helpful to me. And I said, you're right. You know, they are. We have each other. Thank God we have each other. Um, but what... So after the arraignment, then we had to go through a hearing to see if he was fit to stay in trial. And I had to sit behind him. Oh, and I forgot the other thing. When he was on the gurney, the judge and the attorneys were up front and he saw that they were up front and he made a mound with the sheets and he looked over at us and he gave us a finger. And I gasped so loudly. It was like a scream. I was like, ah! like everybody heard it. And I was shaking like when you give childbirth, your legs shake uncontrollably. I was shaking like that, just uncontrollably. He had zero remorse. He knew what he did. He had zero remorse. So then as we left that day, um, lots of reporters, photographers taking pictures and one and I'm crying, you know, I mean, I'm in the worst possible state ever crying, walking out of that jail after being so close to that man who killed my husband. I'm crying. A photographer took my picture and I hit him. I hit him. It was just a reflex. I just hit him like, don't take a picture of me. And we got in the car and then I was afraid I was going to be arrested for, you know, assault, battery. So fortunately, I know the um, 
owner of the newspaper. And so we went there and apparently he had already heard because he was at the front door waiting for us. And he took us back to the office and I apologized. And I said, I don't even know where that came from. I don't even know what I'm doing right now. I'm so filled with anger and I'm, I'm just so upset. And he said, don't worry about it. He said, your picture will not be on the front page of the paper crying. And I said, you know, if my picture's ever in the paper, I want it to be for something good. I don't want it to be for this. Um, but it was, it, it got, a, the whole situation had a lot of attention. Um, we were on, on um, we were in the Chicago Tribune, um, a big article, and it was about nursing home abuse. There was a TV show, sort of like 20, what is it called? 2020, 60 minutes, 60 minutes. But it was, it, it, I don't know, it was kind of an offshoot from that. I wouldn't say it was on Wednesday nights. And they came and, and interviewed us um, about the whole situation. But it did bring to light some of the nursing home abuse. But in my opinion, honestly, not enough is done because you still hear about people in nursing homes being abused and neglected and everything. Um, so after that, we had to go through a trial to see if he was fit to stand, stand trial. And he would sit there with his head down like he was asleep. And I was angled behind him. I could see him. And then when somebody would say his name, he would pop his head up. So I knew the um, state's attorney. And I said, Chuck, he's not asleep. He's faking it. Like, I can see his face. I can see what he does. And he's not asleep. He just acted so disinterested, you know, but he knew exactly what he was doing. So then um, he, the state's attorney interviewed the men who had driven him to doctor's appointments in Springfield, the next city over, and he would do the same thing. They testified to that. He would do the same thing, but then they would say, where do you want to go for lunch? And he would pop up and shout out where he wanted to go for lunch. So it's just a ploy that he used so he could eavesdrop because he thought they would talk about things and he could hear it, you know, because they thought he was asleep. But yeah, um, a clever psychopath, really. Wow. Wow. And in dealing with such intense tragedy, young children, thank God you had such a nice, tight community and people to care for you. I and, couldn't have made it without them. Right. And obviously, and for a good reason. And, and that, that is so important for people to understand that those kinds of intense feelings, they happen to everybody, right? Not just empaths, but when you're an empath, it's even more intense. And so it's like turned up the volume. And so grief for me, my definition of grief is a conflicting mass of human emotion following any significant change in behavior. And I think about this and I think, well, the grief from the death is a big deal. And then there's the grief from each one of those times you had to go to court or do all these different things. And then somehow you got the family together because you, you raised the three children as a single mom. and. You care for them very deeply and they're all very successful now. And I know them all. So I can say that with, with confidence. And so how did you help the children deal with the grief over the years? Well, from the first that I remember, again, I said, I said, I really don't remember the first couple of weeks. I remember um, all of us slept on the sofa and the love seat at the beginning and that was extremely uncomfortable. And then we moved into my daughter's bed, which was a queen size bed. And again, four people, queen size bed, arms and legs everywhere. That wasn't very comfortable. And then finally, we all moved into my bed. So it was a process. And um, they, at first, they didn't want to sleep in my bed because that's where their dad slept. But you know, then as time went on, then they would all sleep in there. And then it just took time. 
And then I think Alyssa walked away first and went into her own room and then the boys did and they had each other. Um, but I remember uh, always giving them a bath, reading them a story, putting them to bed. We had a little, you know, ritual. I think most people do. And in the middle of the bath, I would start crying and I couldn't even do it. And my daughter who was 11 would come in and take over and she would bathe her brothers and put their pajamas on and read their story. And then she would come in and get to bed with me. It was really a lot of support for each other. I took all of them to therapy. And honestly, my daughter is the strongest person I know. And he said, she is absolutely amazing at how well she's doing. And she's, she was a great support for me. The bad thing is she took on the role as second parent. She became the parent. And for a long time, I had no control over those boys. And she did. She, but I would say, you guys do this. And, you know, I was so weak that I had no authority whatsoever. It was gone. Like most of my personality, most of myself was gone with him. And she would, she's commanding. <laughs> She'd say, you boys do this right now. And they would jump. <laughs> I thought, oh, you're good. Um, and she's still very, very strong. Like she's, she's amazing. Um, so I think that's why my children have a, such a, a close tight knit bond. And I'm so happy for that for so long. It was, you know, just us and, um, supporting each other. Um, and then the boy, you know, but I, and the boys did go to therapy too, but they were so young, you know, being three and five, that um, I, I definitely think we're all scarred from it. And it will, you know, we're not the person we would have been if this had not happened. We're definitely not the same person that, that we would have been. Um, and I, I think that perhaps my children, because of that, um, are also have some empathic ways. Um, one of my daughter's uh, friend's brother was killed in, I want to say when they were in middle school or high school. And um, she was devastated and almost kind of an overreaction, but it was because she knew the pain that her friend was in. And that's what she said. I know the pain he's in. Um, and then she, unbeknownst to me, I didn't find out till years later, she was in a group uh, grief class at, at the high school that another lady who had lost her son and then later lost her other son, um, who is an absolute angel on earth, hosted for these high school kids to help them work through their grief. And so my daughter went to that. And I think that was very helpful. Right. Um, you know, my uh, one son's, one of his best friends had been in his wedding in January of last year, and he died in February. And we we're all so devastated, just absolutely devastated. And, um, you know, my son is uh, talking to someone to try to work through those feelings because and I, I told I've told you this before. There was I had a feeling, but I couldn't come up with a word about what grief is when you have grief after the big grief, as I call it, the big grief. Um, and I was reading a book and a man had lost his wife and he had another loss and he said that that grief compounded the other grief and i was like bingo that's my word compounded mm -hmm. so having this big and i had two with my dad and then my husband having this big grief twice than every other grief um when my son's friend died i so heartbroken and devastated and just uh, 
I, I don't know. It's hard to even describe. I, I can't even imagine the pain that his parents feel. And going through that, just the most horrific thing in the world. And even uh, October 1st, my dog died. And I'm telling you what, I've been a mess. And that dog drove me crazy. He was, <laughs> he was crazy. He would run out the door. He crawled under the house and escaped. He was a little Houdini and he would pee and poop on the floor and he would bite people. And we never knew what he was going to do next. But I'm telling you what, when he died, I am, was so sad. I miss him so much. He was my little buddy. He was always there. He was always protective of me. He was not like my other dog who was a little cuddle bunny. He didn't want to cuddle. You could pet him and he'd walk away and shake it off. But I miss him so much. It's just, it, it's awful, awful. Yes. And, and it's like you said, it compounds and there's just so many different things. And, and due to the pandemic, you ended up missing your daughter's wedding because you couldn't travel. Ugh. And that was a very, very big grief because that, that was something that was really important to you. And she's your only daughter. And that, you know, and so when we look at all these things, what do you do to take care of yourself? What do you do for fun? What does Ruth, <laughs> what does Ruth do to be able to manage all these intense emotions and all that's happening? Because in the middle of all of this, all three of your children are very successful in their careers. They have great partners in their lives. Um, two of them are married. The third one's about to get married, right? And yes. so, yeah. we, and they're amazing, amazing people that they're marrying. And you're close to all of them. And they all show up at the house for the holidays and things. And <laughs> you are like the most supportive mother ever. And um, when your kids were playing, the boys were playing college football. I knew where Ruth was on those Saturdays. <laughs> I knew which stadium she was in and I knew she would be wherever she could humanly be to support her children. And that's the kind of depth of the feeling of the empath and being gifted as you are with all the intensities adds a whole extra component to it. And so in the middle of all of this heaviness, there's also a bunch of lightness and beauty and goodness. So what do you do to take care of yourself and what do you like to do for fun? Well, I think um, as far as getting through grief, uh, we have a, a little motto in our family, faith, family, friends, football. And I, I don't know how anyone can get through it without faith, faith in God. I have to believe Gary's in a better place and I will see him again someday. Our family, we need this family support. We always have to be there for each other because in the big picture, nothing else matters except your family. And then friends, friends are invaluable. Friends are gems. They are just uh, such a delight and a support. And I, I can never say thank you enough to the people back in Illinois who supported me during that time. It was absolutely amazing, uh, the outpouring of love that was shown to us. And then football, you know, I honestly, I didn't know anything about football till my boys started playing. And now I am like so addicted to it. I love it, love it, love it. And um, it, it gives me something to talk to them about, you know, like, oh, did you see so-and-so did this or whatever? And we, you know, we have a group text and we talk about it. Um, my daughter's not into football, but um, I have that with the boys. Um, what I do for myself, and I think to get through grief from what I've learned, prayer, number one, pray, 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 pray your head off, pray at night, 
And sometimes I even fall asleep in the middle of my prayer. I feel like God doesn't care. He knows I, I got the main things out first, the most important things out first. And the other things are just, you know, not as important. And then wake up in the morning with a, a, a grateful heart. As bad as it was, it could have been worse. I mean, you know, no matter what you're going through, somebody else has it worse. You can look around and you can see it all the time. Somebody else has it worse. Um, I also exercise because I'm not going to lie. I still have a lot of anger. I really do. I'm still angry that this happened. Um, I and I, I'm an all or nothing black or white person. And I had I was in the zone and the rug was pulled out from under our feet and it was all taken away from me. And I'm angry. And so I exercise a lot and I hate to exercise. I'll look at the clock the whole time I'm doing it. I don't like it, but I know I need to do it. It gets those endorphins going. It's, it's what I need to do. Um, and um, I, I like to read. I enjoy reading and, you know, you know, I'm always going through and finding errors in, in books and stuff. Cause I was a reading teacher for 18 years and I'm like, well, that word's misspelled or, you know, <laughs> Well, that, um, that, that's why you edit my books for me, because I already know you've got the eye. <laughs> so I, I really just love to read and get involved in the characters. And I, I enjoy it more than watching TV, actually, because I visualize in my own mind. I feel like it's better than what the, the TV showed us. I don't know. But um, I'm an avid reader and um, I love to travel. And um, that's been really hard with COVID because of missing trips and you know, everything. And, um, but I do have three planned for this year. So I'm very excited about that. It gives me something to look forward to. And then, you know, I always throw in a trip with going to see the kids sometime or other and, or them coming down here. And that's, you know, and I, I also have a job. I uh, sell real estate. So that keeps me busy off and on. It's kind of hot or cold, hit or miss, but you know, I, I enjoy it. It gives me free time and I love working with people I especially like to help first-time home buyers, and they have a lot of questions. And I say I have a lot of answers. I was a teacher for 18 years, and so I love to answer questions and teach people, you know, what they need to know to purchase their first home. I, I really do enjoy that. So, right. and you're great at decorating, and you have a great eye for things. Your home is beautiful, and you're <laughs> thank creative. you. And I'm going to add one more thing to that list that um, I appreciate about you, and that is your humor. You. Have- <laughs> You have a great laugh, as everybody just heard. You have a great sense of humor and your one-liners and the things you see and pay attention to are just brilliant. And I think that your humor has helped you over the years all through the good, the bad, the messy, the ugly, the joyful, the everything. Yes, yes. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, my children have that too. All of us have that sense of humor, you know. And um, like one thing I've always said, I was never disappointed in my children because I had no expectations for them. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was like, this is wonderful. Everything they do, it's like they're, they're so amazing to me. And I always say they're successful in spite of me, not because of me, but in spite of me. Right. Um, well, because I, I've struggled for many, many years and not been the, the mother that I originally planned to be because of everything that's happened in my life. And um, they were so little, I didn't really have time to grieve properly at the time. And so as they got older, that's when all the grief started coming out. And that's when um, I really struggled. And, and you know, the, the crazy thing is, and people think, here's one thing that bothers me. I feel like 
people think after the funeral's over, it's all, it's over, it's done. We're going home. And I remember thinking, why are people going to work in the grocery store? Like my husband was just killed. It stopped. The world has stopped, but it only stops for you. It doesn't stop for everybody else, but you feel like it should. You feel like there should be like a long pause in time. And then when we get through this, then let's go on and, and do life. But no, it continues for everyone else. And that's very difficult. And then there are so many triggers. Um, I definitely have PTSD um, because of it, which is something to deal with. And about um, five years ago, I got called to jury duty, sat at the 49th Street, giant room full of people, and they start calling people to release, release. Not people looking at my number. Nope, nope. I'm one of 15 left. And I'm sitting there thinking, I can't do this again. I can't go into another courtroom. I spent too many weeks and months in a courtroom. And the whole thing came back. I could see his face. I could see him sitting there. I could, I just, the whole thing, just, I, I went into full on panic attack. I ended up going into the bathroom and I was sobbing and shaking and dry heaving. And some poor young girl was in there saying, oh, ma'am, are you okay? And I said, I will be, I will be. And I splattered water on my face. And I went to the police officer there who was in the room with us, who was a giant of a man. And I said, I am so sorry, but my husband was killed back then. It was like 20 years ago. And I said, I've had to sit through um, courts, you know, dates for so long. And I said, I'm having a panic attack. And he could tell I was shaking and my eyes are red. And I said, I just don't think I can do this. And he said, let me, he was so sweet. He said, let me call the judge. And he said, we can't tell anybody else, but he said, if the judge okays it, I'll just say the restroom's down there and that means you can go. And so fortunately, a few minutes later, he looked at me and he said, the restroom's down there. And so I got to get up and leave. But it was so traumatic because I used to love the jury system and I loved how our country works. And that's been stolen from me. I can't do it. And ironically, I have jury duty on Monday. And I'm just like, well, how's this going to go? You know, I'm just before I was really concerned about it. And now I don't feel as concerned about it. And I think I will just go and just be me and see what happens. I, I can't worry that I might have another panic attack. I'm, I think I'm going to be okay. So um, we'll just see what happens. And then another example is my um, youngest son who's getting married is going to use his dad's ring. So we went to my friend who's a jeweler. And to get the ring cut down because his hand is a little smaller. And as I held the ring, the light hit the inside and I noticed the inscription. And I was like, oh my gosh, I had forgotten we had an inscription in our wedding rings. And my eyes filled with tears and I just sat there and I thought, oh man, I'm going to have to tell Marianne, make sure you don't cut that part out. And I was like, you know, the tools I've learned, you know, take a, a take a breath, try to clear your mind and, you know, get yourself together. And then my future daughter-in-law took the ring and she looked at it and she goes, oh, look, there's an inscription inside. It has his initials and the date. And then I just broke down, totally broke down, sobbing, 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 you know, and it's like people think it's over, but it's never, ever, ever over. The pain is still here. It's always, gonna, it's always going to be inside of me. It lessens, but then it flares up. It's like what arthritis, it, it gets better and then it flares up again. And you never know what is going to be the trigger to make it flare up. Right. It's, it's breakthrough pain and, and it's there and it follows people around and empaths really have a lot more to deal with because of your sensitivity. And 
connection. Plus, it was so personal and so tragic. And I really appreciate you sharing all of this valuable information and also the coping skills and things you've learned, because I'm sure everybody listening to you is gaining a lot of just really great nuggets. And one of my favorite nuggets was when you said, you know, that you didn't have any expectations of your children and you just let them be and grow. And then these great things happened. And I think sometimes having too many expectations causes challenges the other way. So I think that's a really great parenting tip that just kind of fell out of your mouth in the middle of all of it. (laughs) Oh, it is genius. And I, I really, really love that we had all this time together today. And I have two final questions for you. Sure. All right. And there you'll like them, I think, because um, what is, because you love to travel and this is because you love to travel. What is the most memorable food you've ever eaten? Oh, memorable food. You know, um, when Alyssa was between eighth grade and freshman year, we took a trip to Europe and we went to Italy, Greece, Turkey, and I loved all the food everything. And, you know, it was different. And I won't say this right. The Greek food, moussaka, moukasa. I don't, I don't even know. Yes. Love, love, love that. I have no clue what I was eating. I love it. I remember my friend who's a very picky eater goes, Ew, I don't like this. And I go, I'll eat it. And I'm always like concerned about my weight. I'm like Oprah. My weight goes up, down, up, down, up, down. It's such a yo-yo. And I ate so much and the gelato. Oh my gosh. It was like the food over there, everything, every meal was so amazing um, that I loved that. And I got home and I'd lost weight because we walked all the time. And I love that walking. I think the ideal community to live would be a place where you could just walk, 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 and never have to go anywhere in your car. Just walk and live life. Wonderful. But I will say I was in Costa Rica and I love the food in Costa Rica too. Had rice and beans at every meal. And I love the rice and rice and beans and scrambled eggs. I never would have thought to to do that, but that was amazing too. Ooh, that sounds really good. Uh, Awesome. It was delicious. Oh, that's awesome. And so your final question of the show is if we were going to have a billboard up that the whole world would see with your quote on it, Ruthie on it, what is that quote? that you would like the whole world to know? Um, well, it would probably be the faith family friends, first of all. I think it would also be, you need to take care of yourself before you can take care of others. That's Just like too. when you're on the airplane and you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself. And I think that's very hard for a mother because mothers tend to be selfless and put their husband, their children, their job, everything else goes ahead of them. I was really bad about that. I didn't take care of myself at all back then. And I probably didn't start taking care of myself until my kids went to college, to tell you the truth, because I was always so involved with them. Even though I wasn't working, I was the the room mother, I was the football liaison. I volunteered at the school in in the office. I did everything to be a part and to be connected to their lives and make sure they're on the right track. I really didn't, I wasn't exercising or eating right or doing anything, you know, that I should have been doing to take care of myself. Right. Um, But, you know, and be true to yourself, always be true to yourself and always have faith because everything changes and change is so difficult for everyone. And I will be the, I hate change. And the older I get, the worse I hate it. But I know it's going to happen. It just, it's a, fl- life is a flow and it's, it's like waves and it ebbs and flows and you're, it's going to, you're going to have a wonderful day and then you're going to have a terrible day, but you have to stick around because after that terrible day, you're going to have more wonderful days. That's They're right. going to come. 
they're going to come. You just have to hang in there. Right. And you know, you and I know we've lost so many people. Um, yes, we have. We just didn't have the tenacity to hang in there, but you just have to be, I guess, mean and stubborn and say, I'm hanging in there. I'm, I'm going to go on because you have to. I, I mean, for me, I wanted to lay down and die after my husband died. I wanted to go and be with him, but I couldn't. I had three little kids to raise. So you have to be strong. You have to do what you have to do. And I always think back to our ancestors when you see the, the movies about people traveling from east to west. Look what they endured. Some women lost their not only their husbands, but their children. You know, they walked on with broken arms or whatever, and they just kept walking. They kept plugging away. You just have to keep going. Put one in front of the other. You have to keep going. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that your billboard will be like a series of billboards. <laughs> you know, like when you see them that they tell the story, I'm sitting there, you know, and I'm thinking about it. I'm like, I think so. We have to have football on that one with faith, family, and friends. Yeah. And then football, yeah. even if it's little. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ruth, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us today. If you loved everything Ruth has been saying, like I have, you can find ways to follow her on social media in the show notes. And if you're going to the Clearwater, Florida area and you're looking for for a home, then she's the person to contact because that's where she lives. And she is an amazing realtor. And like you heard her say, she loves to answer questions and help people. And I've known Ruth for a long time and I can tell you that's the case. So thank you. Thank you for sharing all of these difficult things and having this conversation. I'm sure that your words have really helped people who were yearning for um, a glimmer of hope and maybe a time of darkness. So thank you so much for taking that and being a strong woman to do that with us today. Thank you. Remember everybody put your face to the sun. So the shadows fall behind you because you're a rock star. You're here on purpose with a purpose. So go out there and let your light shine. Remember faith, family, friends, and football. Take care of yourself first. You heard it from Ruth. We'll see you at the next episode of Someone Gets Me. Until then, be well. Thank you for listening. I trust you gained some valuable inspiration and information. Please join me and other visionaries in the Someone Gets Me Facebook group. Or for more information on my services and additional episodes, visit someonegetsme.com. Again, thanks for listening.